When we talk about foreign policies that work, that succeed, invariably, they have to be supported by both parties. It is the week of October 19th, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director and the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, returning guest Andrew Boreen, NSI senior fellow and the former associate deputy general counsel at the Department of of defense, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So my friends, I think it will come as no surprise uh, when I say that we live in dark times. The highest virtue in American politics appears to be name-calling amidst a historic pandemic, and we can't even agree on whether people should wear masks to blunt the spread of this terrible disease. The bonds of trust between the political parties and even individual Americans are frayed and torn. So we want to do something different this week. We're going to do some counter-programming. And instead of exploring the disagreements between the parties, as we usually do, we're going to discuss bipartisanship in national security and how important it is to the well-being of our nation. This was the idea of our guest today, Andrew, Andrew Boreen. Andrew, do you want to kind of lead this off and tell us how your thinking led to this suggestion? Yeah, no, first off, let me say thank you uh, to you, Dana and Jamil, for agreeing to do this counter-programming. I wanted to be a little bit contrarian. I know we're coming up on the election. Many of us are working very hard, either for candidates we support or causes or policies. And as you said, uh, partisanship is at, feels at an extreme. And what I wanted to do is I'm a big believer as a Marine and as an intelligence officer, that human stories matter and leadership matters. And what I wanted to do was get us all off of the traditional fault lines trajectory of the cable news format, where we kind of advocate different analysis and maybe look back at where bipartisanship and cooperation has succeeded in American foreign policy. And typically, and, and what I wanted to do is see if we could get a little series and a conversation going on these really historic um, American stories uh, of success. And I think for me personally, this year was important. It was the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. My grandfather, uh, the original Swede Berean, was a World War II veteran. And, you know, Japan surrendered, Germany surrendered that year. Um, but that would have been impossible if not for a Republican named Wendell Wilkie, who many people don't know about, uh, who ran for president and shifted against the Republican platform and said that he, after the campaign was over and he had lost to FDR, the Democrat, uh, he got behind legislation called Lend-Lease. And that's what created the ramp up, uh, the arsenal of democracy that armed Britain. Uh, and he had to go against isolationist kind of voices in his party. And that led subsequently to uh, Senator Vandenberg, uh, where get the quote that we've heard about politics ends at the water's edge, uh, that we unite uh, behind American ideals and American national security. Um, and so I just thought that the 75th anniversary of World War II was something that got kind of missed uh, in a lot of cases in the mainstream media uh, and in a lot of academic circles. And as we're the National Security Institute, I really wanted us to think about in the last 75 years, where has bipartisanship succeeded? We've got some really amazing role models, uh, you know, in the past 75 years of Democrats, Republicans and independents working together, particularly on the Armed Services Committee and the Intel Committee. Uh, on major legislation like the National Security Act of 1947, and uh, more recently, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act. 
uh, in the wake of the bipartisan 9-11 commission. Uh, so I kind of wanted us all to, if we're all okay with it, back up away from the presidential campaign and kind of the maelstrom of the moment uh, and get stories on what it is that works in American policymaking between the White House, the Hill, and uh, really a two-party dominated system to advance national security legislation? And what are some of the kind of all-time great hits that that you all see? And we could have that conversation, which I realize is a little contrarian in the week before, you know, final weeks before the election. Andrew, I am also the product of a Swedish-American World War II veteran. My grandfather, the original Lester Munson, I'm the third, was in the Navy during World War II, served in the Pacific, uh, I think for three years. He never really talked about it, but when he died on his gravestone, the epitaph says Lester Munson, Lieutenant U.S. Navy. So it was an amazing thing to see like how much that mattered to him, that it was the one thing that he wanted on his gravestone. So when you suggested this, I went and did a little research and I went all the way back to 2017 and I found a op-ed in Politico by Madeleine Albright and Stephen Hadley one Democrat, one Republican. And they're talking about exactly this issue and about how we need to have bipartisanship. It's almost like they knew that this would be an issue three and a half years ago, that we might want to focus on some bipartisan things in in the days ahead, not to get into what we're currently doing. And they worked through a lot of the stuff you were talking about. They And they had a list of things that, that are very significant of policies and approaches that were bipartisan, that the two parties agreed on, that were very successful, successful policies, containing communism, expanding NATO. They use the word decimating for Al-Qaeda. I would use destroying Al-Qaeda. Promoting democracy, fighting HIV AIDS and the Ebola virus, achieving arms control agreements, and combating narco-terrorism in South America. So the, the list is is pretty robust. There's another list of, of policies that haven't worked out so well. But it does seem like when we talk about foreign policies that work, that succeed, invariably, they have to be supported by both parties. It just doesn't work if it's a policy only supported by one party. So Jamil, I want you to kind of jump in here and give us your thoughts on this. I know one of the things that we talked about when we first started working together in the Senate, whenever it was eight eight or nine years ago, was the successful collaboration between Mike Rogers from Michigan and Dutch Rupersberger from Maryland uh, to work on an Intel authorization bill, which you know sounds a little obscure to most folks, but was really a big deal. There hadn't been one in years. Congress hadn't been doing proper oversight of the intelligence community, which is a huge component of our, our national security. They were able to do that. They worked together. They're still good friends. Why don't you kind of talk about that version of bipartisanship? Yeah, no, thanks, Les. I mean, look, you know, when um, Chairman Rogers and Ranking Member Rupert came together on the Intelligence Committee, they were coming to an Intelligence Committee that had been beset for years by partisanship, uh, going back to Chairman uh, Reyes uh, and then Chairman Hoekstra. And, and ranking member, vice versa. And even prior to that, uh, this was a committee that hadn't enacted a intelligence authorization bill for the better part of a decade. A oversight hearings were constantly uh, scenes of briefers coming in to brief the committee and members walking out in sort of mock outrage. Again, this is, and by the way, this is the intelligence committee without sort of cameras. So there was no sort of audience for this grandstanding. It was honestly just disagreements and politics uh, as between the two sides. Um, of course, they would walk out of the skiff and walk around to the camera cameras that were that were just a little ways down the hallway. So they would make a point about it on camera afterwards. Um, but at least in the room where things were taking place, there wasn't uh, there weren't cameras. And yet when Rogers took over the committee, they agreed to come together and try to put partisanship aside and try to identify the things that were important for national security, like getting an intelligence authorization bill done uh, and working together in the nation's interest. And look, I mean, uh, Dutch Rupersberger represents the district that also has NSA in it. So he was very familiar with the intelligence community, had been around it for a long time. Uh, Mike Rogers, a former 
FBI agent himself um, out of the Chicago field office, a congressman from Michigan. Um, and so they were, but to be clear, these were two men who were, who were staunch partisans of their parties. This is, you know, nobody, nobody thinks Mike Rogers is a squishy Republican and nobody thinks Dutch Ruppersberger is a squishy Democrat. I mean, these are, these are guys who are honored by the base of their party as, as strong fighters for their party. Um, and they decided to come together and find this middle ground. And they did a ton of legislation together. They passed in, in a single year, three intelligence authorization bills um, uh, to catch up for years gone and to, and to get ahead of the next year. Uh, they passed a cybersecurity uh, bill uh, that while it wasn't enacted, that Congress was ultimately enacted a few years later in 2015, um, largely in, in substantively the same form with some minor changes here and there. Uh, they, they managed to get the intelligence community um, under some serious oversight uh, by working together, by doing professional serious oversight, by hiring professional uh, capable staff that worked together and were able to, uh, to find common cause. Um, you know, they were on the committee uh, as members of the committee at the time, where now the chair and ranking member, Adam Schiff and uh, Devin Nunez, you know, they were, these were members of the committee and they even worked together. Michelle Bachman was on the committee. She's not somebody who's, who's shy about the cameras, but even, even uh, Congressman Bachman and these people who now appear so partisan uh, did good oversight. And they asked tough questions and they asked good questions um, under the leadership of, of Rogers and Ruppersberger. Um, you know, they were actually called colloquially uh, Rogersberger. Uh, people would, people refer to them in that way because they worked so closely together. Um, and then, of course, Chairman Ruppersberger went on uh, to uh, a different role on one of the appropriations committees and Chairman Rogers left Congress to pursue private sector uh, interests. And then we had the 2016 election and the debacle of Russian interference. And let's be clear, the Russians interfered in the 2016 election. They're doing it again. Anybody who denies it is simply not telling you the truth. And we're beset by partisanship. Now, some of that comes out of the election and the election cycle, but some of it comes from the personalities, you know, um, in, in Devin Nunez and Adam Schiff. And, and I hold both of them responsible uh, for what's happened to the Intelligence Committee. It has descended into chaos. The staffs don't talk to each other. Um, the members barely speak. They're constantly sniping at each other in public. And what's amazing is even in its highly partisan environment, if you look over the Senate Intelligence Committee, right, Mark Warner and Richard Burr. And now it's Marco Rubio from Florida. Right, because Burr is out, is out temporarily yep. um, while they deal with, the, deal with some of the issues. But they were able to come together and put out very serious reports on Russian interference, bipartisan reports. And so it's proof that bipartisanship can work uh, broadly. Rupert's were proof of that um, in a in a somewhat less partisan environment, and Warner and Burr uh, demonstrate that can be done in a more partisan environment. And yet, across the board, you see very little of that. You don't see that in the administration. You don't see that on Capitol Hill in the House. And you don't see it in most of the Senate, even. And so it's a real problem and uh, and a problem I, I hope that we, uh, through this conversation, can at least start working to address. Dana, uh, let's talk about the, the Middle East for a second. You know, the Middle East is, uh, as as you well know, uh, incredibly complicated. Uh, there's there's multiple power centers, uh, decades long, even centuries long uh, conflicts that are either out in the open or simmer, simmering below the, the surface. And there's a lot of U.S. national interest there. Um, and it can take years and years for the U.S. to have a successful policy that will show positive results in the Middle East. Can you talk about how important it is in a, in a place as sensitive as that region to have bipartisanship in the way we approach national security. Sure, Les. So, so the perfect example of bipartisanship that's remained consistent over years and, and even decades that's led to a really strong and capable partner is the bipartisan support for Israel. And you've seen that both in, you know, really active groups in the United States, but also members of Congress who every Congress are looking for opportunities 
to write letters together, pass resolutions together, even introduce legislation that incrementally, based on a foundational commitment of bipartisanship, moves the Israel, the US Israel relationship forward, strengthening it across a whole variety of sectors. So not just military and defense, not just intelligence, but agriculture and science, culture, people to people ties, et cetera, et cetera. And Israel today is able to defend herself from a variety of threats and actually is a is an incredibly capable partner who actually at times helps the United States address challenges. So this is a great example. And I will also say because of the very dark overview that Les gave, that foundational bipartisanship, I think, is is at risk a little bit when it comes to Israel. Now, a lot of members of Congress are more active in using Israel as a political hot potato or a wedge issue. Um, But still, if you look at the voting record of members of Congress, it's still overwhelmingly bipartisan. Now, we're going to not give Jamil the opportunity here, but I will say prior to the Iran nuclear agreement, Iran was a really good example of bipartisanship where members of Congress came together Congress after Congress after Congress to work together on sanctions legislation at, at times despite resistance from the executive and both Republican and Democratic controlled administrations. So in many ways, it's members of Congress working together in bipartisan manner that led the way in the tough economic measures that ultimately got Iran to the negotiating table. We are not going to spend today talking about the outcome of those negotiations, but I will say that there's this foundational um, aspect of members of Congress coming together in a bipartisan way. And also, since most of us here are former staffers Um, of Congress, I'll say that it's really important to look not just at what members are saying, not just at the bills that they introduce, but the money that they're appropriating. And when it comes to the Middle East, it's pretty steady state. Uh, Congress has continued. Those funding bills don't happen without some bipartisanship. Uh, Security assistance to Jordan and Iraq, to Egypt and Israel, humanitarian funding for the multiple humanitarian crises across the region, democracy promotion, good governance, civil society strengthening, funding uh, to help local partners fight ISIS in Iraq and Syria. These are things that despite the rhetoric that you see happening at a political level, what is Congress actually doing? They're actually having real discussions behind closed doors when the cameras are off about what are the important initiatives in the Middle East that need to be funded. And they're coming together and they're and they're doing that important work. Andrew, you know, I think some people would be tempted to say, well, sure, bipartisanship worked back then when we had agreement on a lot of these big, big picture questions. But I think that's not quite true. I look back 20 years ago and there was a divisive issue then that is very similar to some of the divisive issues we have now. And it was support for multilateral institutions specifically funding of the United Nations, where there were a lot of folks who thought no matter what, we should just, we should pay our bills, that that money was well spent, that we should keep contributing to an international organization. There were others, mostly Republicans who were skeptical, thought the money wasn't well spent, that it was a certain amount of slack in the system, and it was possible that the money was being wasted. And so we we ended up with with an arrearage problem at the United Nations, but two senators came together, Jesse Helms, definitely on the right, and a guy named Joe Biden, definitely on the left. And they worked together to produce the Helms-Biden reforms that led to uh, some changes at the UN, but also full funding from the United States on an, on an issue, frankly, that is it's almost exactly the same as some of the issues we're seeing today with the WHO and the current administration. So in your mind, when you're thinking about bipartisanship, can you talk a little bit more about how it can be a partnership among two members of Congress, not necessarily the administration, but even people in the Article One branch that are that are doing the bipartisan? 
partisanship. No, I, th- I think that's actually a really great story. In 1997, uh, then Senator Biden stepped up as the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, it's kind of a neophyte. Jesse Helms, obviously uh, not a shy arch conservative, was the chair. You know, over time, that relationship ended up flipping. But but I do, I think one of the things Joe Biden said that I had read was that it was never appropriate for him to question the motives of his colleagues. He could disagree on policy. He could disagree on ideology. But you can't question motives. And I think uh, kind of to your point about what was happening in the late 1990s, there were a number of multilateral economic institution issues. There was a conversation about debt relief for the developing world. Uh, there was a conversation about, I believe it was over a billion dollars in U.S. arrears to the United Nations that had been on the hook for and not quite trued up yet. Um, and additionally, you know, some of us remember, you know, I was an economics major in college at that time uh, and started my career in banking, but uh, there was a lot of conversation about the role of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank in global economics uh, as we had just seen a number of Asian currencies collapse. Uh, so, you know, I think, you know, to your point, uh, one of the interesting things, I think you look at that relationship, regardless of the wide disparity on domestic policy, you have two senators, I think, what did they agree on? If you look back at it is US engagement in the world, US leadership in the world. And we've had this conversation on this podcast before, you know, kind of about mend it, don't end it, you know, what are the ways to uh, continue US engagement and US leadership uh, in some of these multilateral institutions. Uh, And I think that's a great example of people who disagreed at home, uh, coming together and passing legislation, it would have been impossible for either of them to pass that legislation alone. Uh, You know, I'd also add that in 1998, not only did they take care of uh, the billion dollars in arrears to the UN in that bill, they, I believe they forgave almost a, a billion dollars or more to that third world debt relief, which was really important at the time for the the currency valuations and economic stability. But what I think is fascinating right now is we face a rising Russian threat and a rising Chinese threat globally. In 1998, they came together and expanded NATO uh, with with a similar piece of legislation. So short answer, yes, to all. I think that is exactly the kind of uh, relationship building that needs to happen. I think, you know, for what it's worth, what I love about us doing this on this podcast is I think the human beings, whether we're kind of policy wonk nerds, uh, whether we're business people, whether we're members of you know staffs on the Hill or people in the executive branch, we got to remember to keep coming together as Americans and let's have a threat focused conversation about what do we share. And then we don't have to start worrying about what each other's motives are because we all want uh, ultimately the same thing, which I hope is American leadership and American engagement. Jamil, uh, I want to go to you next and kind of explore this opportunity, perhaps in the legislative branch a little bit more. You know, the Federalist Papers when they were laying out the case for ratifying the Constitution, talked about the fact that senators serve for six years. It's a longer term. It's meant to be a bridge between administrations, right? A president serves for four years. Senators serve for six. They're meant to have a longer term view of U.S. national interests and not be as caught up in the moment or in the day-to-day management of international relations and and defense concerns. Uh, so, So talk about how we can look, uh, if you will, talk about how we can look towards the the legislative branch, the first, you know, the Article One part of our uh, government, the, the institution that's mentioned first in the Constitution, to develop this kind of approach to national security when perhaps it is the Article Two branch, the executive branch, that's not necessarily doing the right thing in the moment. Well, you know, it's a great question, Les. You know, and it's one of the one of the challenges of our of our system um, that the framers actually intended. Right? They intended the House to be closest to the people. They intended the president to be sort of in the middle at four year terms, and the Senate to be longer term, looking with um, 
uh, with six-year terms. And of course, they split the responsibility for foreign policy in a lot of areas uh, between Congress and the president. Although, if you look at the history of foreign policy, it's largely been a story about the executive branch running it. You know, and there are notable exceptions here and there, um, uh, but by and large, it's been a story of the executive branch uh, being the the primary mover when it comes to foreign policy. And yet, the Senate, in particular, is given particular authority with its ability to confirm uh, ambassadors with its uh, with the treaty power. Uh, with the expectation that it would be removed uh, further from uh, the sort of day-to-day uh, trades with the with the people. Um, originally, as you know, uh, appointed by state legislatures, senators were uh, eventually a direct election uh, under one of one of the uh, one of the constitutional amendments. But the main point is that there was an important role for the Senate to play historically in these in these debates, um, if not to actually conduct foreign policy, but to be involved and to counsel the president and to provide, as as the Constitution says advice and consent when it came to ambassadors or or treaties. And so there's this long history uh, that goes back to the days of George Washington, George Washington actually thinking he might have had to consult with Congress about a treaty. His first experience with it actually was pretty disastrous. He went in there um, and he swore after 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 one short session with Congress that he would never do it again and never and never even consider it um, and didn't, by the way, after that um, uh, to get their advice before negotiating a treaty. He ultimately, uh, he ultimately just sent it to them. This is the Jay Treaty, um, and and they did what they did with it. But um, the point being that Congress can play a role here um, if there's uh, a place uh, where they're willing to sort of assert their authority. And remember, the one power that Congress really has um, in this space is the power of the purse, right? Where they can they can use the appropriations power to really uh, exact concessions out of the administration and concessions out of even foreign powers through the administration. Uh, but Congress has been unwilling to use that. Uh, by and large, Congress has been silent on these issues. I mean, to the extent it's, it's, it's expressed its will, it's done so in strongly worded letters like resolutions um, and, and things that don't mean anything. Um, um, and to the extent that it, it has tried to use the, uh, the power of the purse, when the president's ignored it, take the example of uh, President Obama and ignoring the, ignoring the uh, restriction on Gitmo transfers, um, Congress doesn't enforce its own rules. It doesn't take away the funding, even though uh, that was a violation of the law. Um, under the under that was under uh, passed under the appropriations power. So Congress has some has some levers to use, holding up ambassadors, uh, refusing to consider treaties, um, and to ultimately use its power of the purse. It just doesn't isn't willing to use it. That's true in the Senate. It's true in the House, and that's an unfortunate mistake, I think, by members of Congress uh, who could play a bigger role in the space that they wanted to. Dana, let's talk about uh, the Senate and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where where you know you, me, and Jamil worked at uh, various times. Uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, of course, uh, handles a lot of the issues we've been discussing directly. Uh, to be perfectly frank, there's not a lot of constituent concern for senators on foreign policy issues, right? And I think we're, we're seeing that play out a little bit in this election cycle where foreign policy is just not discussed in debates. It's, they're not really controversial issues that are brought up in state level races or in national level races. So how is it that a place like the Senate and in particular, the Foreign Relations Committee can make a difference in foreign policy when they're not, you know, they're not necessarily reflecting the views of their constituents who are much more focused on domestic concerns? Well, I will say having come from the executive branch over to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Um, One of the most surprising things to me was how the entire nature of of the explanations or the thinking I had to do shifted. So when I was in the Department of Defense and we were talking about security assistance money, uh, funding for training partner, you know, military forces, etc., the question was how much money, where should we spend it, how we should design the programs. When I got over to the Hill, the question was 
why would we be spending any of this money outside the borders of the United States ever? And the great equalizer between Democrats and Republicans is that most constituents don't understand why we're spending precious U.S. taxpayer dollars outside the United States. They don't understand these programs. They don't see tangible benefits for their own economic welfare or their security or their prosperity, et cetera. Now, this election is is an interesting one for many reasons. Most people aren't focused on foreign policy because there's a massive pandemic with hundreds of thousands of Americans dying in economic recession and a variety of other issues, except that this is a perfect example about how what happens beyond American borders affects Americans every day, whether it's a virus and information sharing, uh, contributions to international organizations, international cooperation on vaccine development, the fact that even if there's a vaccine in the United States and we manage to reduce our cases and our death rates here, it's going to continue in countries uh, less economically prosperous, which means it'll affect our travel, it will affect who we can bring you know, visitors that we can welcome into this country, and it will continue until there's a global solution and framework for managing the crisis that is COVID-19. That being said, you know, the question is, how should should members on the Senate Foreign Relations work together in a more bipartisan way? So, so first of all, Congress is the people-facing branch of the U.S. government, and it convenes hearings and briefings and responds to letters and meets with both foreign governments, foreign officials, takes trips, hosts meetings, all of these things. And a lot of that missing piece is is following up on what you learned abroad and how it relates to Americans at home. So first of all, when when the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is holding hearings for the nominations and confirmations of ambassadors, one of the questions we should be asking those nominees is explain to the American people why healthy, good relationships with this country, with X country, Y country matters. What does it do for the American people to not only make the connection for voters, for constituents, but also to remind ambassadors and national security officials that at the end of the day, you are working for the betterment and the safety and security and prosperity of the American people. And if you are not thinking about how the work you do abroad connects to people at home, then you've missed the bigger picture as well. So I think there's a role for leaders uh, in Congress, particularly the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, to hammer home every time they have an event, whether it's a public hearing, a briefing, a trip, a meeting, to then connect to both demonstrate bipartisanship by always looking for a partner on the other side of the aisle and then using the power of social media, floor speeches in the Senate, the media interviews to really explain why what happens beyond America's borders or why we're spending money makes us safer and more prosperous here at home. And I think a lot of that reaching across the aisle and then connecting the dots in a way that's a coherent narrative is is missing right now. So fun fact about the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, there's there's 22 members on it right now. Of those 22, seven have either run for president or been the vice presidential candidate of their party. And of course, not during this administration, but during the last administration, both the president and the vice president had served on the foreign relations. So it's kind of the training ground for presidents and president wannabes. So I think it's it's a place where we could, you know, maybe expect a little bit more on the bipartisanship front. So, all right, I want to throw a question out to the group. Andrew, uh, at the beginning of this, you talked about Arthur Vandenberg, uh, who, of course, was played a huge role along with Harry Truman in uh, kind of crafting a bipartisan approach to the the Cold War era after World War II ended. We're concerned about the rise of communism and the Eastern Bloc and what eventually became the Iron Curtain and all of that. 
Vandenberg was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was the opposite party of Harry Truman. Vandenberg was a Republican from Michigan. He had been basically an isolationist or what we would now call an isolationist. He changed his stripes. He worked directly with Harry Truman. They collaborated on uh, the approval of the of the North Atlantic Treaty uh, that created NATO. They, they worked on the UN Charter directly together. Uh, they worked on the Marshall Plan. They worked on aid to Greece and Turkey, like huge, huge... Uh, foreign policy initiatives, national security initiatives that really made a big difference in the way the U.S. led the world for, for the 70 years after World War II. So here's the question to the group. Who is the person now most likely to be the next Arthur Vandenberg? Let's assume we have we have a change of administration here. Who's going to step forward as the person who can be the partner of the new president to help craft something that might look like a new bipartisan approach? Don't all jump up at once. Jamil, I'm going to make you go first. You are the NSI founder. You have to go. Well, I, you know, Les, I think it all turns on, you know, who the new president is, right? I mean, if, if it is a return to President Trump, I think it's going to be hard to find a lot of uh, people looking to make a bipartisan effort going forward. I think there's just a lot of bad blood in the water on both sides uh, to be candid. And I don't know that I'm just looking at the uh, Democratic run on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and I just don't see uh, that person. Now, if in fact it is uh, President Biden, you know, depending on what happens in the election, you could see obviously Senator Romney is a potential uh, bipartisan, uh, uh, you know, partner for for a Biden. Uh, you know, Lindsey Graham before the Trump era would have been somebody I would have said uh, could have been a bipartisan uh, conciliator. Uh, Rob Portman. Um, you know, and so there's all there's there are folks who uh, who could be uh, potential partners. You know, Marco Rubio uh, even uh, could be a partner for uh, for a Joe Biden on some issues. Uh, Cory Gardner, if he's uh, if he's reelected. So I think there's a number of members on the Republican side uh, of the Foreign Relations Committee uh, and not to say anything about Democrats in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I just think that with if President Trump is reelected, I think there's going to be. Uh, so much of a challenge on the Democratic side. It's going to be hard to find partners for a, you know, another four years in, of the Trump administration. Dana. It's actually, it's just honestly a very difficult question. I mean, the person who has, in my view, tried to carve out a space for advocating about the importance of U.S. foreign policy and empowered national security apparatus, a strong United States on the international stage that could be a partner is Mitt Romney. But I think Mitt Romney probably would have some own problems within the Republican caucus. So what you need is a leader who can both lead and articulate and bring members of his or her own party on side, as well as effectively negotiate with the with the other party. I really like Rob Portman, too. He is somebody who's consistently worked across the aisle to articulate where there's bipartisan consensus. And I think that would be a great role for him. So I'm uh, going to agree with Jamil. Andrew. So I'm going to be extremely senatorial and I'm going to abstain and then I'm going to filibuster. So uh, my abstention is actually uh, based on the grounds that I believe there is an unstated bipartisan support for the emerging world as it is. I believe that you find leaders in both parties and you talk to people like us that track these issues like nerds. And there is a consensus that China is the number one emerging long-term national security threat to America, that they fight on the economic battlefield, that one belt, one road initiative must be uh, kind of uh, addressed head on. South China Sea must be addressed. Expansion to Africa must be addressed. So so we also, so, so I think that's a no brainer. Uh, on the secondary front, I think there's a, a growing bipartisan consensus uh, next down 
down on the list is a Russia that is increasingly active. We've seen it last decade in Ukraine and Georgia. Uh, they, they operate through proxies. They take this hybrid warfare approach very seriously of little green men. Uh, they're, they're scaring people on the edges of NATO. Nobody would want to be the Minister of Defense in Estonia right now, I don't think. Uh, be a frightening time. So I think that, you know, and then, and then lastly, Iran. I mean, I think there's also consensus that Iran and a nuclear Iran is not good for the world. It's not stabilizing. Uh, and so I think, you know, if you look from a consensus-driven, threat-focused approach, I think there is bipartisan agreement on what the world looks like today and moving forward. Uh, and so kind of, yeah, that, so, so that's my, my filibuster will close with, I believe that it is possible for there to be some loyal opposition uh, loyal to the concept of U.S. leadership, loyal to the concept of U.S. working with and through allies against these uh, forces that must be countermanded in the Chinese Communist Party, in Putin's uh, oligarchy, uh, and then in in the threat of you know state-funded terror states like Iran and North Korea. So I think I think we do share a lot of commonalities on the threats we have to combat. So I'm going to uh, suggest that my candidate is Jim Rish who, of course, is the Republican leader on foreign relations. He's been a good ally of the current president, but he also is very mindful of U.S. national interests, and he is not an ideological guy. He's also maybe getting on in years, so he's kind of seeing what the end game is. And I think he's going to look to have a very pragmatic approach if there's a new president. My dark horse candidate is Mitch McConnell, who has also uh, worked in the Senate for for decades. He knows Joe Biden. Uh, They go way, way, way back, longer than some of you people on this podcast have been alive. And they know how to work together. It was actually Biden and McConnell who did a bunch of budget deals, much to the alarm of President Obama. He had to shut him down. So I'm going to look for Rish and McConnell to kind of step up and help us get to a place where if there is a Biden administration, we get to a bipartisan approach. All right. Our final question uh, for the pod this week is talk about an issue you're following that's not necessarily in the headlines. I'm going to bring up Thailand, where there are massive demonstrations going on. Thailand, of course, has been under a military dictatorship for years. People are actually protesting against the royal family. Uh, The king lives in Germany. The queen has been the subject of a lot of uh, nasty protests. This is very unusual uh, in Thailand, which is normally a pretty sedate country where there's a ton of respect for the monarchy. That's not true anymore. Look for things to get hotter and hotter in Thailand and maybe even um, uh, have a little break with where we're going now. Who wants to go next? Andrew. All right. Yeah. No. So the, the issue I'm actually looking at ties into, again, that threat focused consensus driven mindset uh, off of most of the major uh, front pages. The Department of Defense published uh, an irregular warfare annex. Uh, and that irregular warfare annex uh, falls under the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict, involves a lot of crossover into area gray zone uh, operations that we just talked about, Chinese economic influence, uh, cyber operations, disinformation, sabotage, supply chain security and threats. Uh, and how, do you, how does the U.S. use covert action to protect uh, our way of life uh, against those those issues. So uh, I'm actually watching to see what happens with the irregular warfare annex uh, as it relates to special operations, uh, low intensity conflict, and things like uh, special activities uh, of the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, the other thing I think is really important about that is there's been some conversation about uh, in, in nerd circles, uh, should the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations be elevated to an undersecretary level position? Uh, at the time of the creation of ASD Solik uh, as, as Special Operations Command, or SOCOM as it's known, and JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, were created, uh, that was a, at a time when an Assistant Secretary of Defense was much more senior in kind of the E-ring bureaucracy. 
Uh, so a number of retired colonels, flags, and senior civilians uh, from both parties, bipartisan, have kind of made some noises in The Hill and some of these other publications asking uh, for an implementation from a Secretary of Defense to elevate that position to better uh, orchestrate and synchronize the interagency. So uh, I realize that's pretty uh, fine dancing on the head of a pin for nerds that like special operations and covert action, uh, but it's also really important. And uh, so I'm watching that to see what happens uh, post-election if there are noises, either Trump 2.0 uh, or Biden-Harris administration to elevate the role of special operations and its influence in the bureaucracy. Dana, can you out-nerd Andrew? No, probably not, nor am I going to try. I'll just say what I am following is an 11th hour attempt by the Trump administration to secure one more foreign policy win. We spent a lot of time talking about um, foreign policy not being a centerpiece of these elections, but when presidents want to win, they tend to look for foreign policy wins. So in this case, uh, the Wall Street Journal was out yesterday with a big story that a counterterrorism official from the Trump National Security Council traveled to Damascus to meet with officials of the regime of Bashar al-Assad, just to refresh everybody's memories. This is the guy who um, is under extensive sanctions by the United States uh, for dropping chemical weapons on his own people, for bombarding them uh, with barrel bombs in cooperation with Russia, attacking them from the ground in cooperation with Iran, putting thousands and thousands of people in a massive prison system where they are tortured, starved, raped to death, and basically creating the largest refugee situation in the Middle East that has even affected European countries. But the Trump administration sent an official uh, to Damascus, which potentially legitimizes this regime as one that can be negotiated with um, for the yet unacknowledged, unofficially acknowledged, uh, ongoing detention by the Assad regime of an American. This one is Austin Tice. So um, the revelations are that a letter has been written from the president to uh, the regime in Damascus and also that it sent an official uh, to negotiate. And yet there is no proof of life. We're within two weeks of the election. And what is to be monitored is whether or not uh, we secure the release of Mr. Tice. Hopefully he is still alive. We should all pray that he is. Jamil. So Les, I'm tracking uh, two stories related to China coming out of uh, the East Asia region um, and South Asia. Uh, First is the border dispute between uh, China and India that percolated up into actual uh, low-level military conflict uh, a few months back. Um, uh, Now the the Indians have captured a Chinese soldier on the border, uh, but it appears that they are treating him well and they're going to send him back across the border to China. Uh, so a, a potential uh, uh, thaw in the in the cold relationship between China and India that's uh, taken place over the last few months. Uh, but I wouldn't I wouldn't put too much uh, too much credit um, in that, uh, given that India is, I think, finally waking up to the realization that China does not have India's interests at heart um, and that it needs to uh, make uh, a closer relationship with the United States. And that's important and, and, and very useful for the United States. Uh, at the same time. Um, as we know, uh, China has banned uh, the WeChat app uh, in China and TikTok. Um, and on the other side of the border in Pakistan, uh, Pakistan, after 10 days of banning TikTok, has relented and has allowed the Pakistani people back access to TikTok. It remains uh, available. Uh, both WeChat and TikTok remain available in the United States, but only because of uh, court injunctions against uh, President Trump's uh, ban, which uh, was supposed to go into effect earlier this month or late last month, I should say. Um, with some bans remaining to go into place in November. So uh, an interesting uh, situation with China facing challenges uh, in both uh, South Asian countries um, 
uh, there in the region, uh, but also potential uh, good news for China there uh, with the return of its soldier um, and uh, and Pakistan relenting on TikTok. Jamil, I thought it was a massive public demand for your dance moves that was keeping TikTok going. My dance moves are pretty amazing, although unlike you, uh, Les, I am not on TikTok. <laughs> Dana, did you want to say something? An important dance move comment? I just thought Jamil was going to compare his dance moves to some other very notable officials who had some dance moves shared on social media over the weekend. But since he's not going to do that, neither am I. And I'm going to say, if you want to see dance moves, don't go on TikTok, go on Reel. All right, that's a wrap. The uh, conversation on bipartisanship in national security, however, will continue in the new year with a limited series podcast by NSI. Tune in to hear more analysis of key moments of bipartisanship and hear directly from policymakers and staffers on how they cross the aisle to ensure the safety of America. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Zach Varda for research assistance, and Grant Haver for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.